Hi, this is Stephen Piercy from Rat, the Rat Bastard. You're listening and watching Laughing Monkey. Obviously the biggest, probably the biggest album that you guys did. I mean, it still is to this day. Yeah. Yep. So a lot of those songs you have on there were really good. It was the full band. You guys were firing on all cylinders. And what I know changed a lot. I know you like to write alone. Or you've said you like to you write your lyrics and stuff. Yeah. Well, How that changes between the albums, I'm kind of curious about as the band to the years, because songwriting is different each album. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Well, my the way I work and worked with my band with Rad is I, I still, <laughs> unless you bring a song in, mm-hmm. um, that's complete. Like when we were thinking about, when we have the op- had the opportunity to do the EP, we really didn't have any music. We were playing all of Mickey Rat's music. Right. And Up in the Dog. And, and I think we were just starting to write like this one song, Reach for the Sky, and this other one, I Won't Lose, which I have. And the original band uh, demoed it for Out of the Cellar, but never made it. So one day you'll hear those. But anyway, um, if you didn't bring in a complete song back in the day, when we were in pre-production for Out of the Cellar mm-hmm. or the EP, it, it really wasn't, you know, noticed or something. And unless you, we were just, whoa. It, hence, you know, you think you're tough. That was right. probably the first real rat song written as, not as a group, performed, uh, recorded by the band. Uh, all those other songs on the EP, You Got It, Cheater, Tell the World, um, uh, were Mickey Rat songs. They were completely yeah. done, which which it gets to the point. No, I, I I really wouldn't consider working on a song unless you just give me music, you know, unless you really had some kind of somebody. Robin had a great title or, or uh, words for a bridge. Um, and the same will be said for anybody else. I mean, Juan came to the table with... Um, for out of the cellar with a couple songs and they were pretty much complete except on one song i really couldn't bite into the lyrics and it really wasn't me so that's why i like to to write lyrics alone because if i have any kind of outside you know uh influence mm-hmm. um it wouldn't sound like me we said no more time not a ballad no but not a rocker it's almost like a Southern rock, Louisiana, slow cooker, I guess. I, I, I was thinking about it. I'm like, I don't know, even know where to put it because it's not fast. It's the jammy, not Skinnered, but it's kind of got that real. No, I mean, it, it's it's a mid-tempo, uh, I'd say more adult, contemporary kind of song. In, in the uh, wheelhouse of Tom Petty, Neil Young. Yes, yes. Okay, yeah, I give it that. This is the, the song where, you know, where... Um, blatantly saying buck cherry is getting older and getting older gracefully you know what i mean yeah we're not just trying to you know be the same band we were 15 years ago well so, you prove you still can do it though in the other songs though so yeah. it's not like you're yeah not, I, mean, you're not... I mean we still can do it but we you know we want to show range that that we can grow as writers yeah you know? i mean this is as strong as your first also, album so like i think for us it's, this is also part of the spectrum of music 
that we like, you know what I mean? Like we also, you know, like we, you mentioned uh, in another interview about Prince and all that and the, yep. and the more funky kind of influence. But this is also, you know, we love anything from Tom Patty to Neil Young, even John Cougar, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The rate, the spectrum is, is wide. Our riff and then um, arpeggiated the verses with the same changes, uh, you know, went to the four and five chord a few times for a pre-chorus and then I'll, I'll record it in some very basic form. And then usually right. I'll put the headphones on, I'll turn on a mic and I'll start singing. And on a good day, it comes out on the first try, which is actually That's what good. happened with one of us. And one of us came out in a single pass, literally li- every, li- almost every word except for the last line of the chorus, which I got stuck on. And my wife, who was my, my new girlfriend at the time, yeah. was asleep on the sofa and woke up and said, trying to get home. And yeah, I got to give her props for that. It, perfect. It was, you know, it was a good song. It and for sticking with me for 25 years. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> when, but, when. That, but that is, you know, my that is my process. You know, it's like I've got a create some kind of a band and then mm-hmm. okay now i'm the singer what am i going to sing and that's when you know i'm i'm channeling i don't know if it's coming from up there down there yeah. in here whatever um a lot of the time the lyrics that come out surprise me it tells me things that i didn't know were going on in my mind it's a journey really, it's there it is it is a journey and it's therapy and the uh uh, contemporary Christian music uh, awards a couple of years ago, and uh, they kind of uh, acknowledged me from the stage, and they said, "Well, there's Desmond Child. You know, he wrote one of the biggest, you know, worship songs of all time, Living on a Prayer." <laughs> it was like, I got like a standing ovation. So, you know, for one second. But that's pretty funny. You know? It's really funny, especially <laughs> the context of it. Now, because isn't there a line in that song? The um, is there truth to it? Was there like you were involved? This is like a, not a cult, but there's something that's infecting the, some of the lines in the song. It uh, doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. Yes, yes, that, yes. That line was coming out of this kind of philosophy, out of a cult that I was living in at the time in upstate New York, and. Uh, doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. The leader of it would always be saying, kind of with this blank stare, cold blue eyes, you know, well, it doesn't make a difference. Doesn't make a difference. The truth is the truth. Doesn't make a difference what anyone thinks, you know, kind of like doesn't make a difference if we make it or not make it. It's like he had like the Zen kind of thing and it made it into the song and uh but it kind of worked because it said we got each other and uh and that's a lot for love we'll give it a shot so yeah. it's like so like we'll try even if we don't make it and um that kind of was a beautiful kind of uh strange influence you know into the song but you know john and richie helped bring it to- together with this complete thought so i'm very happy you know I mean, whatever I lost, you know, having been in, you know, time and everything, it was made up for 
by the writing of that. And this is because you want to please yourself, but you got to please the audience. No secret here. Guitar shows. Right. It's about probably 990 guys and like 10 women. Always. So and, clearly and stand, help. And standing like this. Yes. You know, I can't tell you that. I'm, I'm so glad you're going with my husband's house to go to that show with you. Like when I'm yeah, all here, I'm like, I love it. So obviously you, you, you got to be able to mix up. You want, you don't want to do valves to a room full of guys that want to hear your like, shredding or rocking. So, I mean, right. at some level it can be, you know, the predicament, you know, a good problem because there are people that are watch you. They like you, but then you want to please everybody, but please yourself too. It can be a kind of a challenge, I would think. Maybe not. I mean, you're like, I don't really care. I just play guitar day show. Well, you know, it's you're bringing up a lot of good, insightful, Sean. Insightful, very good. Um, I fell asleep on a dictionary last night. So, so. <laughs> I um, to me, you not to to get existential on this part, but. You have to be comfortable in your own skin, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you have to understand what it is and who you who you are and what it is you do. So like we were on US tour before it got canceled um, in March, right? In 2020. And we were on tour with a, a great, I'm gonna I'm gonna say progressive gent band called the Arbitrary, right? And they go out and they just crush it every night. And you know, it's a lot of the I I don't know if they would classify it, but like a lot of the the math complex, you know, mm-hmm. and me and my guys, we loved it, but we knew that when we go out on stage, we know what we do. We know who we are. We're, we're going to go out. We're going to play some pretty tunes. We're going to play out some, you know, our major sounding stuff and mm-hmm. we're going to do unapologetically. So um, to your point, I, I really do. I can't play for the crowd and I can't really play for me, I just, I have to play just who I am and what we do. No, that, 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 you know, but just, it's just pretty funny, you know. They're scaring the kids with their tattoos, right? Ron? Yeah, they're scaring the kids with their tattoos. Gene Simmons used to come backstage every night and critique our show, trying to be helpful. You know, he was really nice. And he was like, you know, well, what's with the goatees? And, you know, you go out there and talk about how your job sucks and all this. That's not what these kids want to hear about. And we, we used to have real artistic debates about, you know, uh, you know, these sort of topics. And funny thing is, is like maybe six weeks later, I bumped into Gene Simmons and he's grown a goatee. You know, remember yeah. this was, I had a goatee. I was the first guy to have a goatee. I was right you actually, before, yeah. yeah, before Chris Cornell and all these, right before all those bands came out. And there's Gene with this stupid looking goatee on his face. And I, I gave him a lot of crap for it. Like, oh, yeah, 70s rock band. Huh? What happened there, Gene? You know? <laughs> you know, to his credit, though, like Ron said, um, there was a lot of chats, and Gene would be on the side of the stage taking notes, and he'd come, always come in the dressing room going, don't do this song, turn your set order around stop running around like chickens with your head cut off in an arena you got to do everything slower and so you know I'm yeah, not really good, good input really good input. yeah i mean in this in the music business and we have one label one major label it was on yeah, right. it was actually vgc which was going to be their new startup for their young band label and yeah, by the second record, that was already when they completely gutted the label of people because the Japanese came in and bought it. 
we had to fire Jimmy Iovine because David Geffen and Jimmy Iovine got into a fight because when Jimmy started Interscope Records, he wouldn't give um, all the publishing and distribution to, to, to David. So David was like going to teach him a lesson. So out of the blue, we get this phone call telling us that, oh, by the way, if your manager is now a record label in the state of California, that's illegal. You can't be a manager and a record distributor by California law. So Jimmy's either got to stop running Interscope Records or you have to fire him. <laughs> so I don't think he's <laughs> going to stop running Interscope. No. And sure enough, we, we had a part ways and we brought on Herbie Herbert. And um, Herbie at the time, he came in, he met with the label, you know, it's okay, we got another record coming out. Let's see if we can, you know, motivate the troops to get the label up and, and he came back and he goes, remember I told you that it might be light at the end of the tunnel? I'm like, yeah, he goes, it's a freight train. It's not, <laughs> he goes, they have no intention of really promoting this. They want you guys to go away. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, way it goes. You know? Your album wasn't out. Was, I remember when your first one came out, how much you saw it in the stores. And then when I was waiting, guys, I liked it. I was waiting for the second one. It was, it was the video play and like, it was, you know, anywhere. It was yeah, very, no, they, very, they wanted, very sparse, they, very sparse, that album. No, listen, I had a meeting when our option came there. I had a meeting with David Geffen and Eddie Rosenblatt, the president, and Tony Ferguson, our day-to-day manager. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and David goes, well, listen, you know, um, we're really not going to get behind this anymore. We're going to let you guys go. I'm not going to hold, I'm going to hold you. He points to me. I'm going to hold you to the key man clause. He goes, and because I can't have you guys, I know there's 10 of the labels that would sign you tomorrow. And I can't have you going over to Electra or Epic or Capital. And if they break you, it makes Geffen, my business look bad. Now I've had, I have a history of doing this with Don Henley and Neil Young you know, I'll just put you on a shelf. And he I remember the line. He goes, I, I collect artists like I collect my artwork. And if I want to put you on a shelf and just look at you every once in a while, that's what I might do. I would on drums and Clive Archiston on vocals. By this time, we all had between us one battered copy of the Satanic Bible. So the front of the by the, the Sigil of Baphomet became the logo. Yeah. And then Abaddon drew this logo which later came out, it was copied from something else, right? Because Conrad showed me yeah. it one day when we were training together. Was like, yeah. all the, he put all the spikes on and stuff. <laughs> um, the Sigil of Baphomet has been around for centuries. Okay, so there was nothing designed. It was just copied and stuck together, traced and put together, right? Welcome to Hell or In League With Satan was a standard old English font. Um, we then took names from within the Bible, because um, we thought, right, we're going to do all this with the, the image and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff, the songs. A lot of the early material was written before Conrad joined the band anyway. Um, the name was already there. The name came around by a guy who used to hang around with the band. Um, we were just sitting around one day thinking, hey, you know, we should have a name. And this guy sitting in the background went, what about Venom? We went, that'll do. It was all as quick as that. There was no real thought process put into it at all it's you know, hilarious we, looking we, back at the ink at the uh, impact of the name and just you know yeah yeah we those, those no, beginning non-decisions no, no there was no master plan there was no blueprint the house of pain in like literally like 10 minutes and we kept playing it tim was just like ah because i know back then it's like oh ballads every band had a ballad it wasn't like that for us it was like 
it was a song that I loved because I loved um, Tuesday's Gone by Leonard Skinner was like one of my mm-hmm. favorite songs, right? So I was like, I like the way that song makes me feel. So I kind of wrote something in that, you know, right. you feel the same way. Gave it to Tammy. It took like a year to write the lyrics because he goes, I don't want to just write some stupid thing. I go, I get it. But we still practiced it all the time. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? We practiced a lot of those songs a lot. And then we rehearsed. That's and- gonna walk. Yep. Like, would you come up with that idea? Because it was just like, it had that a was, groove on it. It's just the groove on it. But that was me going, I love Billy Gibbons. I love ZZ Top. Ah, okay. It was a total rip of, uh, of LaGrange. It's like the harmonics and stuff um, that I did. I go, I want something that sounds kind of ZZ Top-ish, you know? Mm-hmm. My influences, rock and roll, we all had kind of the same influences, the same influences, but um, we had so many other influences, each guy that would bring to it then it would sound like Faster Pussycat. But like you, like I was a huge U2 guy and Nonstop to Nowhere on our third record starts because I remember seeing U2 and they played MLK, which is a song that just has a low keyboard. Yep. And I go, I love that. I want to start a song like that, you know? And I want to have a guitar um, line that goes through the chorus like they do or like the babies used to. Two different bands, but the style, there was something about some of that stuff. I go, I want to incorporate this into whatever. And it doesn't sound like bands, but you know, it's your influence. No, that's the point. Yeah. Cat is going to do the best. Yeah. You know, okay. it's like, okay, yeah. well, Guns N' Roses is going to be this kind of more off the side boutique because people thought they were just too mm-hmm. weird. They were too much it. to handle also. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big myth that, you know, especially with Junker that they were signed because of Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses was not a success yet. So. I just think it was a t-shirt and the hype. You know, which well, the t-shirt, the t-shirt didn't hurt. The, the story about the t-shirt was basically, um, the guy who now owns Cleopatra Records, Brian Pereira, at that point he was running a, uh, a t-shirt place, a silk trimming place. So we went in there and we were like, dude, you know, we want to make just some shirts and give them away. And we made about probably 60 or 70 shirts. And every time we played or went out, we would just give them away to people. So uh, I think Axel got his shirt, I think at the same show that you were at, Tim, uh, yeah. at, with, that Tim's band actually opened up for us. And we were just giving away shirts. It's like, fuck it, you know? I got one, yeah. Yeah, what better way to promote? <laughs> you know, it's like, fuck flyers, here's a shirt. And uh, at that point- Well, it paid off. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We were also, uh, other bands that we were in prior to Junkyard and Junkyard, we, we were kind of, we were friendly with um, with all the guys in Guns N' Roses because at that point we had all come up and been in different bands. So finally when Junkyard kind of became this thing, and they would come and see us and they were like oh this band's you know kind of i like this band it's interesting it's not like all their other bands you know they finally got it together and you know figured out a good lineup but uh that's kind of the 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 whole junkyard t-shirt uh <laughs> thing or whatever and also the reason why it says it three times and people are saying you know did you did you nick it for like the cheap trick idea or whatever <clears throat> what happened was on the uh silk screen we it was just supposed to be the line across in junkyard once and we kind of look at it. It was like, yeah, I put another one on. I put another one on. It, was a, it wasn't like a conscious decision going in. We're going to bite. You know, we're going right. to. We actually didn't have a design idea. I think one thing that's been through Junkyard's entire career, there's never been a grand plan. Like the no, best stuff never. we've ever done has just kind of happened. And, yeah. we're, you know, the more we get out of our own way, the better off we are. So logos, everything is everything. Yeah. Kind of in the now and, you know. Not a lot of forethought, if that makes any sense. No, which is good, actually. 
Yeah, we're not sitting around looking at spreadsheets going, okay, well, this demographic needs this and this needs that. It's like, nah, it'll just, you know, if it if it's meant to happen, it'll happen. If not, whatever, you know, it's... Uh, I told my soul, you know, I, I did some stuff for money. They got, you do a couple of these songs, we'll give you some money and get them put in a movie. And, yeah, you know, good songs they were, but they were out of time. I did a, one of the songs on there. Um, I think if I had my way and when I was I Hate Myself and when I was Tobacco Road and, you know, Clive Davis called me and said, man, if you do this, I'll give you some money if you do this song, Tobacco Road and these other two, and I, uh, you know, we'll get them on a soundtrack and I sold my soul to the devil. Oh, come on, I'll stop. Save, save, the, save the drama for like, uh, <laughs> right. so, Clive Davis calls you and asks you to do a song, a cool song like Tobacco Road. Come on, that's right. what you soul. You're not, you're not on stage with Beyonce writing songs for Eminem or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna say no. I know that, but uh, oh, but those are those are not. That's not selling your soul, man. It might. You might have felt different if you look back. Though it's you. You. It's music. It's, it's in your. It's in your range. You know what I mean? Right. Now, if you became like well, see, a dance the only band way back I was, then. Only way I was looking at it was, uh, you know, I, I figured nobody was going to do it better than David Lee did it. You know, I was a big Van Halen fan growing yep. up, and uh, you know, and that, every time I heard it, when I hear my redneck butt doing it, and I hear David Lee doing it, it's just it's just <laughs> different, but. Hey, like I said, uh, Clive Davis don't uh, he don't call many people and ask them for much. So uh, you know, how did you guys uh, get so uh, so tight with him like that? How did that man? He, he just came and I don't know. He I came down to saw you, right? He literally came down when you guys showcased. He saw you, right? Yeah, yeah. That's he, not uh, a thing he did, right? I think it was he, uh, he came there. down and and hung out with us and took my boots home and put them on his desk for a year and. Uh, I don't know. He just he, uh, he liked boots? us because we were ratty. Yeah, he took my old ratty cowboy. I had a, a guitar string and duct tape and beer can holding it all together, and uh, he put them on his desk for a year. You know, every time we'd go in there and listen to something, he would. They were sitting there on his desk. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> he said, "Look at these little redneck boys. They don't know what they're doing." <laughs> well, I think he saw he saw something in you guys. The Bon Jovi album was was originally called "Wanted Dead or Alive," so they all came into my studio. They grew beards. They came in one at a time. They had the hats on, you know, like they were in Billy Billy the Kid movie. <clears throat> I pieced it together to make a wanted poster, and, and that was mm-hmm. supposed to be cover. Then they said they didn't want him to be scruffy, so then I went to Vancouver. We shot it out in Vancouver in a in a warehouse that kind of looked like an old abandoned kind of hideaway, and they were clean shaven and a little bit more rock and roll clothes. And then we had the uh the, the wanted poster in the background of it so that was the okay. tie-in yeah so that was wanted and then they decided to change the name uh inspired by the number five club in vancouver and uh it's a strip club and girls used to go in this plexiglass cage and you know wet them down and uh we would all have drinks and be drooling all over them and of course uh so we would that's that's where that album cover came from uh kind of slippery and wet. And then I think Doc McGee, the manager came up with the name slippery and wet because he did the road sign. So we kind of put two and two together uh-huh. and with that image. And so the plan was when we went back to Jersey, that we would shoot it in, down by the Jersey shore, get a bunch of cars, get some girls and get some t-shirts that says slippery when wet, cut them up a little bit. And that's what we did. Um, which I think ended up being the inner sleeve. Um, and then, one of the girls that we found on the beach had is Angela is the girl with a really big breast that we put front and center. Yeah. And we asked her if she wanted to come in and be on the cover. So that was the plan B is to put her on the cover and the back cover would be them washing the cars and washing the girls and the whole mm-hmm. thing. 
down the Jersey Shore. Uh, it was the PMRC was going on where they were putting labels on on a lot of the albums that were yeah. a little sexually, you know, con- the content was a little, you know, sexual. Uh, mm-hmm. And they, they didn't want to take any chances. And Walmart and some of the big chains pulling that, that record. <clears throat> and uh, so then we had to come up with something else. And then in the final hour, John came over to my studio. He said, Mark, I- I'm coming over. I have an idea. Just have a black plastic bag and, and a spray bottle to wet it down. And I just set it up. He came over. I sprayed the water bottle and he wrote slippery when wet. And he said, that's it. I said, you know, do you want to see the, the Polaroids or anything? He goes, no, just take a picture and send it to the record company. And that was it. How did he do on your album? Don't ever seize him. Oh, Mick Mars. Oh, he's such a darling. I miss him so much. We lost contact. Um, I don't know why. It's not like we had a fight or anything. He just no, no, just of... you were on, on the album. And I don't know how, like, that's such a small nugget. And he's yeah. well, very we rarely on any albums, you know? We just, we became friends. And uh, uh, via my old manager, my previous manager, hooked us up for a songwriting session. And we literally headed off immediately when I said, when he's, he compared a, a song to, he's like, we were writing something and he said, yeah, it's like, a, it's that, it's like that Motley Crue song. Uh, da, 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 da. And I said, sorry, no offense, but I don't like Motley Crue. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't know that he was in Motley Crue. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I, and I said, and I'm really sorry, but I've never heard of you. Um, my manager just said, you're like this amazing guitarist. And, mm-hmm. and then when I, he didn't say anything. And then he brought up the Motley Crue thing later on. And then I said, yeah, I'm not really a Motley Crue fan. And then he burst out laughing and he said, I knew I would love you. I knew there was a reason I would like you. Tell you all these stories. And we just hit it off. Yeah. And we he's... actually got this tattoo together. Um, this one here. Oh, wow. Yeah. He has it on his hand. We went and got it. It's his. I, yeah, it's I that, yeah. Yeah, it's the voodoo symbol for Mars. And so we both got it. And we just, we tried so many times to write something together. I would I'd drive up to his house mm-hmm. in Malibu. And we would end up just sitting in the kitchen on the counter. He would laughing. be eating M&Ms. And we would just be laughing our asses off. At that point, we took out an unknown band that had a rapper and a DJ. And they would get booed every night playing before us. They were called Lincoln Park. <laughs> and they they used the same producer as us. This was 1999, I think, maybe 2000. And I remember Chester gave us the CD of Hybrid Theory before it came out. And I said, that is going to be mega huge. And I was right. It was easy to tell. Uh, it was Limp Biscuit meets the Backstreet Boys. It was going to be huge. I'm a Holiday Inn guy. So I, the band, we only stay at Holiday Inn because they give us uh, the Party Club checkout. Most yeah. bands on the Holiday Tour, checkout is like 11 a.m. I don't leave the bar till 4 a.m. So 11 a.m. is a little early for me. So Holiday Inn, if you're part of their club, you check out a two or four. Uh, so you're actually part of a club? I'm the, I'm a Spiral Leap member of the Holiday Inn uh, IHD family. Thank you. I've actually gotten a vacuum cleaner for my house. I got a slow cooker. <laughs> and, and and one year the band played, we played so many shows, they offered me tickets to the Yankees versus the Red Sox, uh, the Red Sox when they were playing. And I was like, I'm on tour, I can't. So I gave him to one of my friends. Inside the vinyl, there's going to be a download rec- uh, download card. So you can put it on your device. But you're going to only make limited vinyl. So if, if outside of that, you're going to have it on sale, like digitally online, where people can get it too? Um, that will eventually happen. I'm, I'm mainly focused on 
you'll get it digitally when you get the record because you'll have to download right. them. So cut cut to the chase. They yeah, they get the little card to go. Oh, yeah, but it. if they don't, but what if they can't buy the album? The album sold out. It's hard to press like a second press. Only a few people want it. Then we'll have to figure something out because they're being jerks. Then I'm not gonna. I, I can only hope. I can only hope that they have the difficulty yeah, where they handled right now. I right? sold so many records. People that don't. Even, they're driving me crazy. They were trying to get some other way now. Yeah. Please, I hope I pray for that problem. Well, I don't know. Kevin, I don't know. Right away. Listen, listen, Daddy Warbucks. I know how many, how many we're going to print. Kevin, get Maury on the phone. We need more albums right away. Get the donkeys running. I expect. I, I want the platinum album. So let's go. Yep. When you get your platinum, I want it right behind me. <laughs> I'm all here. I'll make you one. Your little free paint. I would hang it up. You do that. I'll hang it up. I, Kevin, dope this. We got to get him a, a platinum record. The new record. You know, I got what do you put your name on? I'll put it up. We'll do it. I'm going right. to put my cat down and order more records. <laughs> <That's> just, just... <laughs> the wig. The wig. The wig. The wig is... It... <laughs> well, the concepts are difficult. It took me a long time to get one. I know. That's <laughs> what I'm going to call this. This this podcast will be called Back with the Bong, too. So uh, you don't have to worry about making that now. Good. Well, you made it. Back with the Bong. <laughs> Two. Two. With a movie, with I don't know if you've seen our movie, our documentary that's out. I wasn't part of that. Documents yeah. the whole thing. That you know, it goes it goes through the process of us, you know, getting back together and and, and the conundrum of finding a lead singer that can that can replace Kevin Dubrow, which yep. as you will see in the movie, is not that is not that easy. There's really yeah. no, there's not replacing a guy like that. Yeah. Shit happens all the time. The bottom line is we have Jersey Pearl now. So we're very happy, and we're gonna you know hopefully have some new music with him. And um, you know, Frankie definitely that was. Jizzy was Frankie's best, his favorite out of all of them. And Kevin really liked Jizzy, which is most, was most important too, because a lot of the times we'd get these no-name guys in here. I, was, I always thought, what would Kevin think of this? Now I know for a fact, because I toured with, um, with a rat in Quiet Riot, with Jizzy was singing for rat, that Kevin and Jizzy were buddies. Mm-hmm. And they weren't like super, super tight, but they got along, they respected each other, and they were cut from a lot of the same cloth as far as just focused on always being a great front man. So I think that we finally got, you know, I think that now that Jizzy's back in the folds and things have solidified, we're, we're right where we need to be. So when Frankie first fell ill, we had a show in Dallas, Texas, and Frankie called me asking if I knew any drummers in Dallas that could learn the set and be down there in five days to play it. And I called Johnny, and Johnny knocked it out of the park. And, and Frankie knew Johnny, obviously, through me. And they, you know, they they, were, they had a good, they were on good terms. They always talked drums on Facebook and shit like that. So okay. it was kind of a no-brainer. It just kind of fell into place, and I'm glad it did. Well, I, I think it's kind of glad to hear that because it's like Frankie was kind of like talked to uh, Kevin's mom. It was like an honor and respect of like carrying on the torch if somebody leaves yeah. the band or passes away. Just it's, you know, it feels right doing it like that. You exactly, know? exactly. It's not like it, you're just you know. doing it like. With, yeah, every everybody, all the chip, all the all the cards were on the table. Everything was all out in the open. It was very, yeah, it, it happened very organically. I mean, it was an unfortunate situation, but it, I'm glad. It, I'm glad it would at least unfolded the way it did because it kept everything going and kept everything on a positive level by having someone we like working with all around, like Johnny. You know, I had another similar thing like that with with Ed, where he came to a show of mine at uh, I was opening for Jeff Beck at uh, this venue in Los Angeles called the Nokia Center. Mm-hmm. And Edward came down for the sound check and they stuck around for the show. And um, while we were playing at sound check, we were working on this really hard song, which is called St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast. Yeah. And it has a really, really hard part that I learned to play on guitar. It was never meant to be played on guitar. It was mm-hmm. for marimba to begin with. Anyway, backstage, he was like, 
what the hell was that thing? Like, what were you playing there? You know? And uh, I tried to show it to him. He's like, I could never play that. And of course, technically, I think he could. It would just take him a while to, but the, the whole point was like, here is, you know, Edward Van Halen at my show and saying, yeah. hey, how are you doing that? I could never do that. It's total role reversal compared to like me being a kid going to his shows and be like, how are you doing that? And it's like, oh, it's like this or, you know, so I just, it was such a great thing to be able to have that experience. You know, this quote is, uh, I believe it's Mark Twain that said, uh, uh, you know, when all your freedoms are taken away, only the outlaws will be free. And uh, I've, I've taken that to heart for, for my whole life, you know, and I'm just like, somebody's like, you know, now isn't weed illegal in Texas? I'm like, yeah. And I was like, so? <laughs> you know, like you do everything everybody tells you to every time you know or, or like whatever like that's that's how the nazis got as far as they did yeah you know what i mean it's uh, i feel like it's my patriotic duty to stick my middle finger up to the government sometimes you know well we appreciate you smoking as much weed as you do to keep the nazis out of the country so <laughs> I, I salute you on that <laughs> one I didn't... so how did you end up with cradle filth and then you know keyboards how did that evolve to that point at least so we get... oh man i looking back at that now um I got the call and it was just kind of like answering to the call. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm going to be any good. I was in like my first semester at university. I mean, I have classical training in both singing and piano. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this. And I tried out and I got the job. And it was really strange because the band is based in England and I'm all the way in, in near well, Toronto. Well, that's something like, what circle do you travel in where they're calling you for a tryout? With Cradle Filth and you're you know, a student and then they're like, how would they get your number? How, like, how would that I evolve you? It happened because like they, when I was hired, they had a tour coming up in America, like North America. Yep. That's where I was located. And at the time, the former, now former guitarist, Paul Allender was living in Minnesota and he asked someone out there to do it. Melissa mm-hmm. Furlack of, she was in, with Visions of Atlantis and quite a few other bands. And she was like, I can't do this, but you should choose her. And they chose me. It was just, I was very lucky. It was very, very lucky. Right place, right time, made it work. Um, And it's just, it's never a position I saw myself in. Like I I took it gracefully and I was very grateful for it. And I- Were you a fan of them before? No, I hated Cradle of Filth in high school. It was like some of the worst music I've ever heard. Looking back now, I think I was just talking about Danny's voice. No offense to him, but um, (laughs) it's just not my cup of tea. And- um, I like the music. I love the symphonic element of it. I mm-hmm. love Sarah Jezebel uh, Deva's voice. I love her. Um, but I just was like, I'm like, I don't like this band at all. Like I always used to joke and be like, Demi Borgir's better. And they, to this day, they're still my favorite metal band. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just didn't like them in high school. And then I ended up working with them for seven years. And I'm like, this is strange. <laughs> be careful what you say now, what you, what you like, what you don't like. Another seven years will be locked up for them. Yeah, who knows? You know, maybe, uh, oh gosh, it's like five minutes punch will call me or something. Don't even say. Got together and I gave him that song and I go, hey, I want you to learn this song uh, from my Wayback Machine. It's called Kansas. And Brown is like, wait a minute here. <laughs> it, sounds like, it sounds like a song of mine. I'm like, no way, man. That's my song. I don't, and plagiarism, how dare you? <laughs> you know, and it, it sounds, it's uncanny. It sounds pretty close, pretty damn close. So did I steal it? I, I didn't mean to, but I, it's a, you know, here, here it is. Here, hold on a minute. It's like. 
that's mine, but his is like, it has that, uh, mine is like, you go a little crazy, baby. The conversation's petrified. You know, that's like that. And his like, uh, I can't sing this high in this key, but it's like, could it be da 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 That's his. And it's, hey, it ain't my sweet Lord, but it's pretty damn close. And then, of course, as a guitar player, I've got to work on people's albums and play guitar on stuff, you know, sometimes uncredited, you know, when you're working in a band, I'm just fixing or replaying parts. It's just part of what you do. Sometimes credited. Then I've had some really cool credits. I remember um, I did I did three Ace Freely records, and on one of Ace's records, we had Slash and Ace do a dueling solos like on the couch, which is over there, and uh, um, it was a cover of um, Emerald by Thin Lizzy. And then, uh, you know, um, Ace had to go off on the road and he went off and did some shows and he calls me up and he goes, ah, I I, I can't figure out the freaking, I haven't got time to do the harmony part. You do it. So I just did that. (laughs) So I did that part. It's very, it's very like kind of uh, spinal tap that moment. You remember remember that harmony part? So I did it and, you know, sent it to him and he really enjoyed it. And, uh, so the album comes out and it's like, first of all, it's a cover of one of my favorite bands, Thin Lizzy, you know, so right. it's Thin Lizzy, you know, Emerald, um, has the musicians listed guitars, Ace Freely, Slash and Warren Hewitt. I mean, <sighs> you, you, you don't get I mean? better than that. Yeah. You don't get better than that. If you, if you could think of being like a 15 year old kid, you know, being a rock guitar fan and somebody was going to say to you, you know, Sean, you know, in, in 30 years time, you're going to be on a record with these two like rock superstars. You'd be like, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Muddy calls me one night and he goes, Hey, come up to this house in the Hollywood Hills. He gave me the address where the studio is. I'm making a record with a band and they're like 1960s hippies, like Rolling Stones falling down drunk on acid. Yep. They look like they're like right out of hate Asbury, which they are. And they look like they're, they're, we're trying to make a record and their drummer just passed out. Come up to the studio, bring your sticks, the drums are here. And so I literally get in my car at nine o'clock at night, drive up the Hollywood Hills to the studio. And there's all these like crazy looking hippie people outside smoking. And it was this total tripped out scene, like right out of a, a Fellini movie. And Muddy comes out and he grabs me, he goes, great, thanks for coming. And literally they're carrying the drummer out and he's just like, like literally drag, dragging his feet. And so, they're like, he's like, this is my buddy, Adam. He's going to help us finish the album. And they're like, oh, cool. Thanks for coming. And, you know, everybody was a little like a little suspect, you know, but Muddy was like, listen, do you guys want to finish this album or not? Adam's a great drummer. And they're like, okay, cool. So we literally put on headphones and they start showing me the songs and we just start recording. And it was, it was really right out of a movie. It was just like, it all started to flow. It was all magic. And it was just this trippy sixties, psychedelic music and i was like this is so cool but it was also very shambolic where it was just at any moment it's just going to completely fall apart and if you know that band or you learn about them and you see yep. that documentary dig that documentary is, them, yeah yeah you'll see that that's what makes it so great is at any second it will it might implode and it might mm-hmm. implode a couple of times a night <laughs> and it didn't while i was there we cut uh, i cut the drums on that record and it worked out great and so 
came time for the next record and those guys had kind of gone up a notch and people were starting to know who they were and they were getting some notoriety and success. So they rented this giant house in Echo Park to do the album in and Muddy was again producing. And so Muddy said, I want to bring Adam into play. And they said, hey, he's great. Bring him in. So that's how I got the gig plan almost is Muddy was producing and Muddy brought me in and I got to spend the month cutting drums on the Strung Out in Heaven album with those guys. And they asked me to join the band after that album. And this was during the dig uh, shoot where there was cameras all around and we're trying to make a record. And there was a lot of craziness involved and a lot of other things like substances and craziness and all sorts of some, it made it more of a dangerous kind of strange rock and roll scene than I guess I would be more comfortable in. Yeah. And so I just knew this is probably not going to be a good band to join. Plus I had a band already uh, that I was, we were getting ready to put out another album. So I just, I, I, I rolled the dice and I said, I just don't feel right about it. And I, I had to decline the honor, the uh, offer, but I definitely was, I appreciated being, being offered the gig. Yeah, but just, just pretty funny, you know? They're scaring the kids with their tattoos, right? Ron? Yeah. They're scaring the kids with their tattoos. Gene Simmons used to come backstage every night and critique our show, trying to be helpful. You know, he was really nice. And he was like, you know, well, what's with the goatees? And, you know, you go out there and talk about how your job sucks and all this. That's not what these kids want to hear about. And we, we used to have real artistic debates about, you know, uh, you know, these sort of topics. And funny thing is, is like maybe six weeks later, I bumped into Gene Simmons and he's grown a goatee. You know, remember yeah, this yeah. was... I had a goatee. I was the first guy to have a goatee. I was right actually, before, yeah. yeah, before Chris Cornell and all these, right before all those bands came out. And there's Gene with this stupid looking goatee on his face. And I, I gave him a lot of crap. For it. Like, oh yeah, 70s rock band. Huh? What happened there, Gene? You know? <laughs> you know, to his credit though, like Ron said, um, there was a lot of chats and Gene would be on the side of the stage taking notes and he'd always come in the dressing room going don't do this song turn your set order around stop running around like chickens with your head cut off in an arena you got to do everything slower and so you know and yeah, really good, good input really good input. yeah i mean in this in the music business we have one label a one major label it was on like, yeah right. it was actually vgc which was going to be their new startup for their young band label and yeah, by the second record, that was already when they completely gutted the label of people because the Japanese came in and bought it. We had to fire Jimmy Iovine because David Geffen and Jimmy Iovine got into a fight because when Jimmy started Interscope Records, he wouldn't give um, all the publishing and distribution to, to, to David. So David was like going to teach him a lesson. So out of the blue, we get this phone call telling us that, oh, by the way, if your manager is now a record label in the state of California, that's illegal. You can't be a manager and a record distributor by California law. So Jimmy's either got to stop running Interscope Records or you have to fire him. <laughs> so I don't think he's <laughs> going to stop running Interscope. No. And sure enough, we, we had a part ways and we brought on Herbie Herbert. And um, Herbie at the time, he came in, he met with the label, you know, it's okay, we've got another record coming out. Let's see if we can, you know, motivate the troops and get the label up. And, and he came back and he goes, remember I told you that it might be light at the end of the tunnel? I'm like, yeah. He goes, it's a freight train. It's not. <laughs> he goes, they have no intention of really promoting this. They want you guys to go away. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. It's the way it goes. You know? 
your album wasn't out. It was, I remember when your first one came out, how much you saw it in the stores. And then when the, I was waiting, guys, I liked it. I was waiting at the second one. It was, you think there's a video play and like, just, you know, anywhere. It was yeah, very, no, they, very, they wanted, very sparse, they, very sparse, that album. No, listen, I had a meeting when our option came there. I had a meeting with David Geffen and Eddie Rosenblatt, the president, and Tony Ferguson, our day-to-day manager, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and David goes, well, listen, you know, um, we're really not going to get behind this anymore. We're going to let you guys go. I'm not going to hold, I'm going to hold you. He points to me. I'm going to hold you to the key man clause. He goes, and because I can't have you guys, I know there's 10 of the labels that would sign you tomorrow. And I can't have you going over to Electra or Epic or Capital. And if they break you, it makes Geffen, my business look bad. Now I've had, I have a history of doing this with Don Henley and Neil Young you know, I'll just put you on a shelf. And he said, I remember the line. He goes, I, I collect artists like I collect my artwork. And if I want to put you on a shelf and just look at you every once in a while, that's what I might do. Songwriting. Are you somebody that sits down, you know, some people sit down every day and they're going to take a pad and you're just going to jam. Some people are like, I couldn't force a song out. And some people are like, I'm sleeping in bed and I, I hear this. Um, I, I, I think I write most of my songs from walking down the street. And you see something and you get a little idea in your head. And it kind of, it's like an earworm and it, it nags away at you. And, and when it when it goes away, that's fine. When it doesn't go away, that, that's then is the time to pick up the guitar and try and work it out and yeah. get the notepad and fill in all the blanks and try and make sense of this kind of abstract idea that you've had. But the ideas that don't stick with you, if you're trying to write a catchy pop song, you know, some people record everything in case they forget it. And I always yeah. think, well, if you can't remember it, how do you expect anybody else to? You know? <laughs> it's kind of true. Maybe it's an excuse or maybe right. it's... But, you know, ideas come. The only problem is I end up with quite a lot of walking pace songs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Anarchy. Nothing, nothing is slower. To- motivated me to, you know, follow this path this pauper path <laughs> um, and uh, I started out playing drums. I just gravitated, right? I was always banging away on pots and pans anymore. I went to go start a band when I was a kid, I think 11 years old with some friends in school. And I pointed to one friend, he was a guitar player, another friend, he was wanted to sing. And I had like three friends that wanted to play drums. And, you know, I'm like, so nobody wants to play bass, huh? I'm like, I guess I'll be a bass player. Fine. Um, you know, by default, and it turned out to be a pretty good decision. Yeah, I, I play guitar. I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't call myself a guitar player. I play guitar. Well, you play more than cowboy chords, though. I'm a cowboy card, chord kind of guy, and, and I can write guitar parts. You know, and yeah, um, textures, and you know, I can map out and orchestrate. You know, guitar parts mm-hmm. for songs. But you know, I wouldn't just pick up a guitar and go, "Hey, man, I'm gonna sit in and you know, just blow." You know, I'm not that kind of, not that kind of guy. I'm more of a song, song and dance man. Well, the thing is, you know, with Trickster, it's kind of like, you know, I mean, for the most part, it, it, Steve's the primary songwriter in Trickster, and you know, he and I work well together in the sense that, you know, the songs usually start with him. He comes to me with the ideas, and you know, if if the song needs some work, I'll edit, add a bridge, a chorus, something, you know, kind mm-hmm. of. 
customize what he's trying to get down, you know, but basically he hands me a bowl of clay and says, you know, this is, this is cool. Right. You know, and and I kind of go, yep, there we go. And that's it, you know. So I went on tour um, with him, and oh, I was like, oh, "Sound like shit, bro." I went on tour with Brett Michaels. I I, uh, I did meet him though, um, and he was very nice. I gave him a hug, and immediately um, the pain in my hip went away. So he might have some kind of Messiah, unworldly. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's good to know. Maybe we can put that in a bottle. Actually, he yeah, needs to put that in a bottle himself because he's pretty good at uh, merchandise. If you, that's right if you ever have any ailments go stand in line have them touch you and then be prepared to you know to pay whatever it was like 15 dollars or 20 you're at an la gun show it might be 20 it's the inflation we gotta make up for the covid it's um <laughs> that you'll probably get from the hut <laughs> <laughs> i cured your hip but i gave you covid bro COVID. But COVID, well, can you cure that too? That'll be another yeah. fifteen dollars. Uh, I said it's actually at thirty dollars. It's a, it's, a, mm. it's actually a pyramid yeah, scheme. That's right. I'll do the <laughs> VIP COVID package, ninety bucks. I give it to you. I take it away, and you get a shirt. <laughs> yeah, it's super. It's a very prestigious drumming gig. It's very yeah. It's very intense. Um, but um, it was it was very different for me than just learning a rock song and stuff. I had to learn these nine-minute pieces of music with, and with, they didn't read music either. Um, it was all memorization. So in videos, to watch the guy playing it, and then you you copy it, and that's what the audition was too. You know, I, I when people ask me what the audition was like, I say it was like that game Simon, where you have to remember the colors mm-hmm. and stuff. Because they would sit, they had all these different percussion setups, very interesting stuff that Blue Man has. And the guy would play something. And uh, first of all, I was nervous as fuck because <laughs> I was super nervous yeah. because, you know, because it's a big, a big gig and I really wanted it. Because um, I'd moved out to do the rock camp to Vegas and mm-hmm. that was kind of slowing down. And so a lot of people were getting involved with the whole business scene oh, yeah. there. And I was, it was really giving me a bad taste in my mouth. So, um, so I really wanted that gig. And, take a break from rock touring and stuff. And I, I was yeah. like, I could just do blue man, but anyway, and I ended up getting it, which is great. But um, the, the audition was very tricky in that they would play something and then say, okay, here you go. You play it now. And the, the guy that uh, Jeff Detora, who was, who has been in blue man for many, many years, he's the one that saw me at rock camp and asked me to audition. I, they hadn't had auditions in like five years. And so there was like 20 guys auditioning. I got in the room and I asked him, mm-hmm. I said, what, what can you tell me to, you know, what can I know? He goes, nothing really. He said, just remember that you can ask to, to see it again, which was super helpful. And then there's a certain thing with their drumming on, on the drum set um, where you keep pumping eighth notes with your kick drum and your hi-hat. So it's both at the same time, which is very strange for a natu- naturally for a drummer to do because usually they're mm-hmm. doing different things. But this this one's just boom 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 boom, and then you do stuff with your hands because they're so, not readers of sheet music. Maybe it's a, it, the music evolved that way. No, well, that's the pulse. Now. That's the Blue Man pulse. There's a sixteenth note thing that, okay. and there's the boom 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 boom. So that's their that's kind of like part of their music. That's the pulse. Um, so that was great. But you know, to ask to see it again because they did a couple things and I was just like, what? 
I didn't, I didn't react like that, but that's what I was thinking in my head. And I said, can I see that again? And I, I guess I did it well because I got the gig. So, and I did it for, you know, about three years. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. I had a blast. It was so much fun. Uh, but I was in the, in the lofts at the, um, um, what was the name of the, the hotel, the, the casino we were at? Um, it's now called the Park MGM. Uh, Monte Carlo is where we did it. In Lance Burton's old theater, The Magician. <laughs> that's where it was when I, that's where Blue Man was when I, when I did it. It was like a 1500 seat theater. It was pretty cool. Um, you played there for like what, a couple so, nights a week? couple shows <clears throat> it was every excuse me it was every night we would do double shows two shows but me personally i would do two nights so i'll do two doubles you know yeah. um but um but i was you know we were the band there were six uh three string players and three drummers and we were up in lofts with with like white paint like tribal paint and the, when the black lights would hit in our hair and everything and doing the real tribally stuff it was so much fun. And then we're watching the blue man. We're up above them and we have to kind of watch what they do. And, but it was, it was, I was pulling my hair out learning that stuff, man. I mean, once I learned it and I got a few shows under my belt, it was, it was fine. It was, you know, smooth sailing from there, but it was, it was frustrating to learn. It's very tricky, you know, but it was challenging. And, you know, I, I enjoyed that. You were probably based at home too, so you weren't traveling a lot. So you had a couple of years. Exactly, and I was like, traveling. I can just, I can just do this, man. I don't. I'm, I'm not doing music, tour. and I have a house. <laughs> yeah, and I have a record. I was making good money too, so yeah. I had a recording studio in my house, and I could buy gear, and I was writing my own music because I play guitar and, and piano and sing, um, and um, so I was, you know, really enjoying that. I had quite a bit of time off, and I was able to, um, to do, uh, to write my own music and record, mm-hmm. which is what I did with Alex. out there um one of the projects i don't know it was very exciting endeavor to Mm -hmm. um make this online show in april um 2020 because uh back then uh, it was a total lockdown in moscow it was impossible to go outside your house without having a special qr code oh really yeah, it was the, the I think, there were uh, the most restrictions. Uh, now we have almost none restrictions in Moscow. Just really? You have to put face mask when you're going in some yeah. public places. Would you say there, there's, a co- there's a code you had to have to get out of the house? Like, would you say Sorry? a code? You said to, to leave uh, the house originally, there's a code? Yeah, you had to have a QR code. Uh, if you wanted to to drive somewhere from around the city, and we managed to get all uh, to get these QR codes for all the people who are involved in in this mm-hmm. um, live translation a live show. Yeah, it was really hard, and we were rehearsing before the show. We were rehearsing few weeks in let's call it secret place <laughs> because. <laughs> <laughs> All uh, places where uh, the bands were rehearsed before, they were closed. And uh, we had to drive uh, outside the city to a secret place. (laughs) 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 So actually, yeah, it was... On the other hand, there have been a couple other pieces out there that have talked about the poison thing. Right, yeah. And, and, And make sure it's in context. Because this is video, it will go out all as in one piece. I don't, I won't edit it out, so... Maybe if you want to, we can clarify, make sure it's a clear thing sure. too. 
Absolutely, I don't want it to be you know, misunderstood in, in any way. What happened was, is really that uh, I came to America for the first time, actually, on tour with Europe. We were rehearsing at the Warfield Theater in San Francisco, and I had a rental, and I was crossing, uh, I was crossing the, the the Bay Bridge, I think it was, and. And all of a sudden, I, I hear my song on the radio. Or let me correct that. I hear my chorus in, a, in another song on the radio, right. in a different lyric. And I, I, you know, I stopped. Back then, we didn't have any mobile phones. I stopped, right. made a call to my manager. And it turns out uh, uh, that he had been in con- contact with the producer uh, of that album, who uh, actually had brought the Easy Action album, which my song "We Go Rockin'" is on, to the studio when Poison yeah. recorded their debut album and played it back to them, and they just nicked the chorus from one of my songs. He suggested they do a cover, but they they didn't. They just stole the chorus and redid it. So, uh, I mean, that's the truth. What happened was I wasn't really plugged in to this because Europe was doing really well and I was completely busy with that. But my then publisher, Warner Chapel Music, went ahead and, and sued Poison's publisher. And that's when it started. I wasn't really involved at all, actually. And it ended up with a settlement out of court. Good. It's, so, you know, I, I have a couple of thoughts on that. If you want to hear my opinion, just to kind of hash it out a little bit. And that's not a taking aside thing. But I was thinking about it because we, I went and heard the songs and I compared them back to back, fresh on my mind. I do hear the melody. And you know what's interesting is, I know you said you, if you had sued them, like in, look at like looking back. But if you look back, you know, I think that probably the suing out of court and settling was probably the best for the bands, because I think if you being from who you are, being little known, like for the American rock audience in the '80s with no internet, right. suing an up and coming band. First off, the press would have killed you because they could have, there could have been a press bin. Definitely, that would have happened. So that could, have, or Poison could have gotten careers. So it really could have killed two money making band careers if it wasn't quietly handled. And I'm not saying they didn't take it, or they didn't nick it, but I almost think that like the legalities of it. There's a more to it. As well, the thing is, what happened uh, before they went to to a hearing? When it comes to copyright cases like this, they hire somebody. Um, with musical uh, skills, but not in the same business. In this right. case, it was a musician and a conductor that got to listen and compare the booth, both the songs, mm-hmm. make like a statement, which is normally that statement is very, uh, it's very important. It's, it's very important for the outcome of the lawsuit, if there's ever a lawsuit. And he said, not only did they steal the chorus, they unintentionally stole part of the band name. He was claiming that that's a common thing when it comes to uh, plagiarizing songs, that you steal more than you you intended to do. So he claimed that I want action was actually easy action. Here's the thing. I've heard a lot of things that I read in magazines over the years when I was growing up. Right. And now I've talked to the artists you know, and the producers and stuff to, to ask these stories, and they weren't true. 
Right. So, so, so Lord knows what would have come out of that. You know what I mean? <laughs> With such a, a, you know, and then Europe was just starting to break over in America and America was the, you know, the place. So you never know what happened, but anyway, anyways, I wouldn't have been the one in charge of the lawsuit. It would have been, you know, one of chapel if it ever went to court. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, if, if the guys in Poison would have approached me as the songwriter and asked me, you know, we like your song, but we would like to use the chorus mainly and rewrite it a little bit. Are you fine with that? And I would say, yeah, sure. as long as I'm a co-writer on the song. And we could have split. Yeah. It would have been the fair thing to do, I think. The tour was Kiss, Winger, and Slaughter. <laughs> and Winger dropped off to go finish off their record because uh, the label rejected it. They wanted another single. So we got stuck on the tour, you know, Jimmy got us on there and it was funny because we go out there and because Winger dropped off, ticket, ticket sales went in the toilet and Gene and Paul were freaking out. So, you know, so we're out there and within like a week, word comes back that Winger had a song, they recorded it, the label liked it, they're ready to go back out. So Gene wanted to get us off the tour. So get them back out and... He called him Jimmy, and again, this is one of my most favorite things that anybody's ever said, and it's just classic Gene Simmons. He told Jimmy that we were going over like pork chops at a bar mitzvah. <laughs> All the people that are, we went to school with and everything would show up, and I'd get up front, and they're the ones that started the little chant, Torah, 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 you know, because we were wondering if that was even going to work. Uh, we had a friend, her name was Kelly Coffey, that had <clears throat> listed a name, a, a whole big list of names, for the idea for the the band name and uh tora tora of course came off the van halen women and children first record it was a little 30 second intro in there and she had that down and we were like yeah man let's you know let's try that one and we went to do this gig downtown in nash uh not nashville but uh downtown in memphis there was a place that we would go and um they had an open mic jam kind of thing for young uh underage bands and stuff and we went and did it, and sure enough, man, people walked up front and started doing that the chant. It was kind of like the toga chant out of Animal <laughs> <laughs> So we just said, man, that might really stick. That might work. And uh, it was just uh, it was just amazing. It was a warehouse, and it was like right in the center of town, right in the middle of Memphis. It's right next to our Coliseum. Um, it was next door to a Coca-Cola factory. So um, our guitar players father had had rented this space uh and he was put storing some things in there it was actually 55 uh gallon drums they were empty and he was he had them in there and we asked if we could rehearse in there and uh, um we ended up pushing all those drums to one end of the room uh both ends of the thing had a a bay door on it and but we pushed all of them to one end and put plywood on it (laughs) and built some tape and so we actually kind of created our own little space for people to come and see live music. It was kind of an underground kind of thing, I guess you'd call it nowadays. Uh, yeah. Kind of grassroots place. But um, that's the scene I met earlier when I said it. Yeah, I know you guys did something like that. That's the scene. Yes, man. I was and referring it was to. Crazy because um, we were kind of looking back on it in hindsight. We weren't thinking of it at the time, but. It was kind of, you know, we we're kind of like little entrepreneurs, man. Uh, we yeah. had this, uh, we had a place where it could fit, man, probably 400 people or something. I mean, it was big. Uh, we put a PA system in, we put a lighting trust thing in, we put these, <laughs> we built uh, our logo out of two by fours 
and painted it and hung it in the ceiling, man, with like glitter all over it. If that thing would have fallen, it would have like killed somebody. I'm not kidding. I can't believe I'm, when I think back on it, I was like, man, it's a wonder it didn't take somebody out. But anyway, we kind of built it and um, we would actually advertise it on the radio. We would say at the warehouse, come and see, you know, the band and that local DJ, Malcolm Riker, was one of the guys that was helping us. We he had kind of taken a, a liking to us. He 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 really helped break us in the regional kind of market because uh, he put our song on and it got into the top five requested songs. And it was Phantom Rider. That was a song that kind of broke us out. Uh, it really championed on, you. It was on the the EP. It was a different version than you hear on the the Surprise Attack record. It actually has piano playing on it. The producer played piano on it and all that stuff. So it was a little bit more organic sounding. It was much more produced yeah. on the Surprise Attack record. That's when Joint Forces became an all original band. We were the first band to come out in Connecticut to do all original music. There were bands doing like some originals and cover yeah. tunes, but we wanted to come out and do all. Uh, all original music, an hour and a half, have a couple bands open for us. Uh, we took a big chance. A lot of the uh, club owners didn't think it was going to work. Uh, it was kind of risky, but uh, we did it, and it went over. It, 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 like, took off like crazy. The band became huge, and then from there, you know, uh, we got hooked up with Joan Jett's management. I remember that. Yeah, so we, you know, we... Uh, we became, uh, we went out on tour with Joan Jett. Uh, the guy, the, the guy who was with, uh, uh, with the, with the Joan Jett company, uh, he, he partnered with somebody that owned tour buses. So we actually went out with Joan without a record deal. We had no record deal, but we were on tour. That's uh, pretty cool. I heard yeah, she's pretty cool though. Everything was great, you know? You guys were actually, weren't you guys in the movie? I heard rumor you guys were actually, some of you guys were in the band in the movie or something. Is that? The whole band was. Uh, yeah. Light so, day, right? Yeah. So we get done with the tour with Joan. We did a whole East Coast tour with her. And uh, a few months later than that, um, we got a call saying that, the, you know, they were, Joan was going to be in a movie. Yeah. And for a band. Uh, so we had to send in our stuff. Even though we just got off tour with Joan, we still had to send in. Uh, uh, pictures and all this stuff and they accepted us so the next thing you know uh you know we're flying to chicago where they filmed it and we're, we're going to be in a, a national motion picture with michael j fox and joan jett so that was, that was a really big deal you know it was uh there was now even though the movie uh you know had reviews because it was uh it was the first time michael j fox ever tried to do a serious role everybody liked his you know, uh, family ties. Yeah, the cutie thing. Yeah. Yeah, it was more of a comical thing. This wasn't that at all. It was a serious role. It had a serious, uh, uh, a serious script, you yeah. know, a mother who had gotten cancer. and everything. So it was more of that type of movie. Uh, but it was still an incredible experience. I mean, uh, just getting to go to the Hard Rock Cafe in New York for the movie premiere party was an experience I'll never forget in my life. Walking the red carpet, and, uh, yeah, it was it was mental. I mean, the the cameras going off when we got out of that limousine. Uh, I'll never forget this. We're standing on the red carpet, and you know they got the they got it all roped off. This is at the entrance to the Hard Rock, and um, we're just standing there. Nothing's happening, you know. 
So somebody says, hey, who are you guys? And um, we say, oh, we're joint forces. And then somebody goes, joint forces, you're the Huns in the movie. And as soon as somebody said that the Huns, you know, that was the name of the band in the movie. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, thousands of cameras started going off like flashbulbs, like everywhere. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. It was the wildest experience, just seeing all those millions of flashbulbs going off at you and stuff. But, you know, it was very cool. The party was incredible. Carly Simon, uh, Ronnie Wood from the Stones, Paul Schaefer, you know, from the David Letterman show. He had two girls, one girl on each side of him. It was, it was, he was just like he is on the Letterman show. Uh, yeah, it was it was uh, it was a great time, and I got to tell you, um, I I got along with Joan very well. Her 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 and I, uh, she, I was the only one that she actually spent some time with. Yeah, out of the band, uh, we had a very good communication. Um, and Michael J. Fox uh, took a lot of time with me. We talked guitars, and um, you know, I I actually wrote out some tablature stuff for him. You know, it, it was like. Uh, a great experience in my life, you know. That's pretty cool. Jake on, on distance. He was uh, he he was good friends. He used to hang out at the studio all the time with uh with the drummer, the guy that owned the studio. You know, the guy Vinny Castaldo that I made that record yeah. with. Chip came out later and played the bass on everything, but but uh, Jakey was there, you know, and uh, and uh, it just never even crossed my mind. And one night we all went out partying, and we were jacked up out of minds, and came back. Back to the studio, Jake and me and uh, Vinny, and and uh, they laid down this track called Joni Lynn. It's on the Dissonance record, and I asked Jake. I said, "Hey man, you can you blow a solo on this one? I need a solo right here, you know." And and he blew a solo on it, and it was great. And uh, that just led to, "Well, can you do something on this one?" And before you know it, Vinny had talked him into playing uh, all the reinforcement guitars on the, all the songs. That's crazy because 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 yeah. he was for a while. I mean, obviously he's a legendary guitar player. Yeah, but he, he kind of he chilled out for a while. Or no one like you know what I mean he wasn't kind of under the covers for a while. So like whenever you hear him on something, everyone just jumps for it because well nothing nothing worth his uh, worth his while was coming along you know because uh, after the last things he'd done you know mm -hmm. he's waiting to do he wants to do something you know great again and so not not a whole lot came along but he also had problems and stuff like that that yeah. kept him under the radars. That's not really my no. uh, place to tell. No, but he, he has to go from Ozzy, but Badlands was just freaking ridiculously he's, awesome. I, I, I love he's that. He's so much better than I ever knew he was, you know. I didn't really, you know, pay too much attention to him, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. we toured with him and stuff, but, you know, I really didn't uh, listen to him much or look him up or anything. And then when he was, we were hanging in the studio and stuff, we, we'd put up a few videos, you know, uh, during their, you know, doing the night or the session stuff, and I'd see it, and then I'd hear him, and then watching him not playing on my songs, it's like, it's not his cup of tea. It's not his style or anything. And that's why we probably would never, we discussed maybe we should get in a van together, but it's like apples and oranges. You know what I mean? But, yeah. but uh, he did a great job. I want to go over is you got your guitar back, your purple guitar. What happened was that? Um, well, ever since I first got that guitar was right at the, right when we were demoing uh, animals and human intelligence mm -hmm. and I got it and it was like pristine, you know? And uh, so it's, it's tore up, you know, and I used it for, every enough i had endorsements with other guitars and stuff like that i never used them i lost the endorsements because i wasn't using them they come to see it you know sneak out to see me and stuff and that's all i used unless i had a broken string it was that Les paul every show every 
record and stuff because it just fit me great and it sounded great and uh and so that was like one of the only things that I had still had left and took with me when I left the band in 2001 you know and uh make a long story short a landlord in the building we lived in I was a witness to him murdering a hooker and so uh everything that we were getting shuffled out into the street like right away and we needed money bad and that was the only thing I that I had that uh that could uh you know that would help enough to get some money so I begrudgingly sold it but to a fan made you know it was to a fan yeah got the money and uh, made an agreement that you know if you ever sell it I know where it is now and if I ever can get it back you know or something and are you gonna do any touring with this album as Kobe kind of does you support your album at all uh I don't know (laughs) you were so laid back about everything huh (laughs) you were so laid back about everything you're like I don't know I couldn't imagine ordering food with you. You'd make me crazy at a restaurant. What do you want, Stephen? You're like, ah, nah. do you oh, want to get, ah, what do you ever you want? I'd be like, Steve, I'm starving. Before I the restaurant, decide what you want, Stephen. <laughs> I have no problem ordering food. Um, no, and this, I don't really have a problem making music for such decisions. But touring, in, you know, it's such a strange world. Out really there. wonderful time. Should I put my trickster plaid shirt back on just to have continuity? I no. no. I hey, just, uh, I just, I, just, just to be with you is, is, is more than enough. That is a, such a bad, I know. I can't believe that's not playing in the back. Hey, this is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big, and you're listening to a real, <laughs> real interviewer, interviewer, Sean Ratchis on Laughing Monkey Music. Take the G off of laughing and put a laughing and talk later than an Irish accent.